Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Hey family, today's Thursday so it's time to talk turkey. Or ribs, or brisket, whatever you want to talk about. This is episode 7 of season 2, Living the Dream. In this season, I'll be chatting with some of the most successful barbecue entrepreneurs out there about the different types of businesses you can get into and what it takes to be successful. We've all had that moment. You're kicking back with some mates and an idea flashes through your head. Is it brilliant? Is it foolish? And how do you make the decision as to which it is? And more importantly, how do you get that idea from a sketch on the back of a napkin out to the public? Very shortly, Mark from Smartfire will be taking us through his journey from napkin to international sales. It's been a hell of a ride, and Mark lets loose with some helpful hints for any of you listeners with ideas of your own. So let's get into it. Grab some potato chips and something cold and wet, and settle in. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Big thanks go out to Jagged Woodfired for helping me bring you this episode. Buying a smoker can be confusing. Something for low and slow, something for roasting, a pizza oven, what about baking? The Jagged Woodfired smoker does all of these things. The question is how? First, the entire smoker is fully insulated. The firebox is insulated with kiln grade bricks and there are more on the cooking chamber floor, doubling as a pizza stone. The cooking chamber is then insulated with a 6cm or 2.5 inch insulation blanket. This means that the Jagged can get up to 600 degrees Fahrenheit in under 30 minutes, sit at low and slow temperatures using very little fuel, and will even sit well under 200 Fahrenheit for cold smoking. Jagged wants to make sure you have a very happy new year, and so until the end of December 2017, they're offering an exclusive discount for you Smoking Hot Confessions podcast listeners. Use the code word CONFESSIONS at checkout if buying online, or quote it when dealing with them direct for 15% off your purchase price. Head on over to jaggedoutdoorovens.com, spelled J-A-G-R-D, to learn more. Alrighty, welcome to The Confessional, Mark. The listeners can say this along with me by now. What was the last thing you barbecued? Um, some butterfly lamb, actually. Um, love cooking lamb. Um, it's very easy during the week. Um, though the best thing I've cooked this week was um, some eye fillets last Friday with some friends. That just came out just fantastic. Oh, that sounds delicious, mate. How'd you do that? Um, at a friend's place, um, so- somehow got handed the tongs, um, and I cooked it on his Primo and um, just did a reverse sear on it, and he had some truffle oil and all kinds of things, and it was delicious. Oh, wow. Truffle oil. Very fancy. Yeah, yeah. He went all out. Very cool. So I've described you in social media posts as the Tony Stark of the Australian barbecue scene. Can you share with us your superhero origin story with barbecue? I honestly don't think I'm in the same league. But, um, yeah, I cooked for years on a gas um, barbecue, as many in Australia ha- had. Um, but all that changed after a few camping trips of some Brazilian mates. I'd get some rock salt and throw it on some plain rum or chicken and like an, and put it on an open barbecue, just simply a open pit barbecue. Um, and a few hours later, you just had this amazing barbecue, the best I'd ever had in my life. So, yeah, that changed everything. How did they go just, just throwing it on the barbecue? Do you mean they, they did it caveman style and just dropped it on the coals? 
Oh, no. So they'd have a long pit. Um, sometimes the pit was about three metres long and they dragged the embers at the appropriate stage up to one end. Um, I've seen them cook on proper grates that they had got from um, some this Brazilian-style barbecue called Moor um, through to shopping trolleys. I've seen all kinds of things with those guys. Um, but, yeah, it just works, and it works so well. Shopping trolleys. That's hilarious. I thought that was just an internet meme. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you cook on at home now? Um, I have my trusty Primo XL that I use quite a bit. And I have a Pro-Q that I love to cook chicken on and take away for weekends. Um, sometimes go down the coast and we have a group of folk together and I'll take that and cook for everyone. Um, and, you know, I've got a couple of Brazilian more barbecues, which is this cheap um, barbecue buy in Brazilian supermarkets. It's great. You're in the, the food aisle and there's a barbecue next to you and you can buy it. Um, but, yeah, I'm hoping to get a cabinet or – um, something like an offset over the next year or so, just to experiment on and learn a little bit more about. Oh, very nice. Have you got a particular cabinet in mind? Uh, no, but, you know, there's the manhorn guys, there's the octopus, and, um, you know, we might even have Return of the Jedi with Robert Radar Hill. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? It'd be very good. So what's your favourite thing to cook then? Um bit like last Friday night, your know, favourite thing is if I'm having a bit of a more of an intimate dinner with some friends, you know, a couple of bottles of wine and, you know, another couple to hang out with my wife and I, um, we just love to cook um, scotch fillet. You know, reverse side scotch fillet is just impossible to, you know, kind of match that for a good meal together. Yeah, sounds nice. Did you just say reverse seared? Yeah, reverse sear it. Um, but, you know, having said that, you know, if you're having a bit of uh, fun in the sun, you know, standing around... Um, the smoker and cooking chicken wings with her beer with some mates, um, I think that's my close number second. That is hard to go past, isn't it? It is. <laughs> now, you are from Melbourne, and Melbourne is known in Australia as being a bit of a foodie mecca. Uh, how have you seen the barbecue scene evolve in your part of the world? It's everywhere. Just last weekend, um, a friend was in the car, and she commented on how many times she'd seen some sort of reference to smoked barbecue or barbecue meats on chalkboards outside of um, pubs as we drove along. And yeah, I think there's two main reasons for that. Um, the quality of the restaurants um, here to keep the doors open is pretty high. Um, so if you are in barbecue, you, you have to do quite well and you have to impress. So you know, we have the likes of Blue Bonnet and Meat Mother and Fancy Hanks and these kind of restaurants that are close into the city have really got the word out to, you know, um, sort of the office workers, you know, at lunchtime or, you know, getting something together with um, the uh, office mates after work. And then we've had the barbecue festivals like, Meat stock and yaks, and you know, when these festivals bring in 10,000 hunters at a time, um, I mean, these are a lot of people who thought the best ribs they ever had before was at TGI Fridays. So, getting <laughs> the word the, 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 the word out to those guys and showing the real American barbecue, 10,000 people at a time. I mean, there's no Mexican food festival that's that big. We have one, but it's not that big. Um, it's just unique. Um, so I don't know of too many festivals where we celebrate one type of food and we have 10,000 people attend. So that's pretty cool. Absolutely, yeah. I, I was down there for meat stock in, uh, in April and that just blew me away. I couldn't believe um, just how big it was and how, how far-reaching and the, the size of the crowd that was there. That was uh, – it, re it really opened my eyes to the potential of it all. 
Oh yeah, it's packed and it's just getting bigger every year. And you know, watching the um, sales and the restaurants and sort of you know, the people who go, oh, you know, you just have friends you haven't seen for a while, and they go, oh, can you cook me some barbecue? I've been hearing good things about it. Um, and those kind of things. And so it's really getting out to be there and it's something that people are actually wanting uh, for their weekend. So, yeah, it's been really interesting to track. Mm. So getting onto the Smart Fire, for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us a bit about what it is and how it works? Okay, sure. Um, Smart Fire is a wireless barbecue temperature controller. Uh, basically, it works by connecting to your home internet and then you can control it via your smartphone. So this means you could be watching the game inside or down the road fetching supplies or even seeing your kid's soccer game, but you're still able to keep an eye on how your cook is going. The important thing, since it's a controller, you can set a target temperature and the fan inside the controller regulates the airflow into your smoker. By regulating the airflow, you can maintain a temperature within a degree of your target. And that's important because what good is it knowing um, that the temperature is dropping if you're a few blocks away um, or, you know, even the next suburb, you know, at a soccer game. You want it to be handling it for you so it means you can sleep and spend more time with your family. Mate, that sounds like a dream to me. I uh, I, I love uh, putting my brisket on at about 11 o'clock at night and then going to bed and waking up in the morning just in time to wrap it and uh, get it through the stall through the rest of the morning there. So uh, that sounds right up my alley. Well, it's, it's, just, it's true. And that story of the soccer game, that's not something I made up. It's something that came through from Cusper thanking, for, thanking me for how they um, how it had changed their Saturday mornings, um, just being able to go and not worry about it. It was just such a awesome thing for that family. So it's good. Yeah, well, I've, I've always uh, loved how, how barbecue can bring families together, can bring people together. And so for a barbecue device to enhance the whole family experience – to me, that's just win-win all around. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. So what's the history of the Smart Fire? How did it come about? Um, so picture this. Uh, the sun is shining. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. And you've been running around all day preparing the house for a dinner with friends. You know, it's a pretty common situation. You're pretty tired out. But finally, the house is tidy. Your wife's looking at you and going, yeah, cool. We're sorted. And you happen to have a pub that's about 40 metres from your house. What do you reckon is going to be going through your mind right at that moment? So, yeah, you could say that this was an idea born at the pub um, simply because, you know, being a kind of newcomer to barbecue, you know, I was constantly checking the temperature all the time. And if you go to the pub, you can't see what temperature it is. And at that time of afternoon, things are starting to heat up. You know, your pulled pork is starting to come through the stall and it's kind of speeding up. So you want to keep a good eye on it and know when it's a good time to come home. Um, or you might be, you know, about time to turn it or give it another um, spray of um, a liquid. You know, it's that kind of time when things are happening. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you just don't want to be chained to your smoker. So... I said about making a system so I could remotely monitor the temperature. I started off thinking about baby monitors that had a camera attached to it so I could look at it over the internet. Um, but then I realised, you know, there's much, not much good if you have it for temperature, but you can't do anything about it. Um, you, you need to be able to control the temperature, you know, so then you can spend more time with the family and they can actually see you on the weekend. Um, so I didn't buy one as, you know, at the time I thought, well, this is just ridiculously expensive. Um, you know, being in Australia, we get lumped with 
um, excessive freight charges, in my opinion. Uh, I think one company even charges a extra charge just for international handling because they don't like shipping it to anywhere but the US. Um, it's just it's just crazy town. So, you know, I you know I had the idea that I wanted to build it, and you know, based on the, the whole idea coming about by cost, you know, I wanted to build something for myself and see how cheaply I could do it. Um, yeah, you know, I had to spend a lot of time looking at what other people had done in their you know, do-it-yourself kind of market. Um, I saw that they had a lot of issues and you know, people kept on commenting the repeated issues with you know, temperature monitoring not being accurate and all kinds of things. So um, it took me quite a long time to kind of learn about electronics and kind of get going. So once I finally got it going um, – you know, people saw my sort of posts and they started commenting, oh, when is it going to be released? And yeah, and to be honest, I, I'd just been doing the project to satisfy my curiosity and keep the brain ticking over. So that was quite a surprise. And I suppose that was the sort of birth of Smartfire then rather than earlier. I, I just wanted something to control the temperature and go to the pub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh... – we can all relate to that. So, <laughs> when you say that you can that you can actually control the temperature, do you mean like from the pub, for example, I could bump the temperature up or down from my phone? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, it has to follow the laws of physics in terms of uh, and thermodynamics. But um, effectively, what you're doing is you can go into the app, go to the pit control screen, and on the dial, you can choose the temperature you want as a target. What it does then is either adds a bunch more air according to what's known as PID algorithm that varies the fan um, according to what your target is and what your current temperature is. Um, and it will basically coax the fire to be a little bit warmer or you know, actually throttle back the air that's being provided to kind of choke it down a bit. So obviously the Smart Fire is a barbecue-related product. We know that. Um, how has the barbecue community shaped the development of the Smart Fire? It's quite funny. Um, I, I can honestly say Smart Fire wouldn't exist without the direct involvement of the barbecue community. Um, for example, a f I'd posted some early photos of my prototype and a friend said he'd need um, four probes because he had a bullet smoker and he wanted to be able to monitor a level of his bullet smoker plus a meat and do another level plus the meat and have the two ambience there plus two food. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting because um, my current SmartFire design at the time had two probes. So, you know, <laughs> that caused a bit, uh, bit of a change and shuffling of the feet and design and, you know, finding out what parts to use to do that. Um, and that, you know, that had a major impact. And there's been so many cases along the journey of um, SmartFire where this has occurred. Um, and one of the key things is in the early days, once we actually did launch the – um, SmartFire is we create a SmartFire owners group um, so that technical issues and development and tips and tricks could be transparent to everyone. Um, you know, they knew about the issues that were going on, if there were any at the time with software or whatever. Um, and everyone was on the same page and they could actually provide help to other owners. And this has been amazing because you get to watch what solutions people came up with or what issues they had or what they were trying to do and by everyone noticing and observing this people start making comments about oh mark it would be great if in the future we could do xyz or if the graph was like we could toggle things in the graph or what a couple even simple things like um 
uh, people in the UK wanted to change the temperature of a pork roast. They said they preferred to have it a few degrees less. And so that added a new feature in the app where you can actually customise or um, slightly tweak a target temperature of a given um, protein in the app and just actually toggle it down by a couple of degrees and the app would remember your preference. Um, so, you know, fairly important features have come out of you know, the barbecue community and sort of you know, people using it, learning about it and, you know, just coming to it day by day and going, hey, this would be great if we had this or this was my experience last time. Um, and the other thing has been attending actual barbecue festivals and competitions and sitting down with them, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night on the night of cooking um, when everyone's kind of relaxed and, you know, sitting there and just showing them some ideas or talking about things and showing prototypes and getting that feedback from uh, folk who might either use it professionally in a business uh, for catering or a competition team or folk who are just keen amateurs that, you know, just out there for the first comp and have a few questions or you're curious about their setup you know having all that kind of feedback has been instrumental in you know how we've developed smartphone yeah that um sounds like you're very uh very active there in the in the community and responding to feedback and whatnot so that um that group that you mentioned before the smart fire owners group is that on facebook yeah certainly it's on facebook you can search for it and join it um and it's sort of a complement to the main sort of commercial Smartfire page um, where everyone kind of posts their cooks and their photos and we run a monthly photo comp and which is a lot of fun to watch people's um, submissions. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a good community. That oh, sounds like great fun. Mm, it is. Yeah. So the, uh, the app that you were talking about before, um, obviously someone's had to code that. What's your background? Did you do that yourself? So my background is in IT. Um, I used to be a programmer for many years. Um, I also used to do systems and networking, and I worked in corporate product development. So I've got a fairly good background um, for having started SmartFire, um, sort of understand it from the business perspective and the technical perspective. So I think that's put me in a fairly good position. Yeah, you, you said corporate development before. What does that mean? Um, when you're doing corporate product development, it's sort of the strategy of how you develop a product. Um, I work for, let's say, the biggest uh, carrier in Australia and looking at their products and how we do a technology strategy around that. So so that's my background. So when you understand about the, the metrics and how you design and how you specify and how you actually deliver a product over many years, um, just gives you a different perspective on you know, coming up with a new idea. Ah, sounds like you had all the experience you needed to get this off the ground right from the start. I was in a pretty good position. So um, 2020 vision, you could say that was meant to be. <laughs> I'd say so. Mate, now you did mention earlier that you um, that you had looked at what else was out on the market and all, and uh, as part of your market research. What is it that makes the SmartFire different to what else is out there? Well, we have um, a couple of things we're proud about. We were the first to do cloud connectivity where you could, you know, leave the home and actually still see your cook and control it. Um, we were the first to actually have a smartphone app uh, for a smoker controller. Um, importantly, we have all the smartphone systems running on 5 volt, which means you can plug them into any smartphone power bank 
um, which is really important because a lot of people don't have a power outlet next to their smoke in the backyard or they might be competing or they might be catering or you know, any camping. There's all kinds of situations where running a 240-volt lead out to the backyard isn't particularly practical. So we believe that having 5 volts and having a nice small uh, mobile phone power bank is amazing. You know, No deep cycle, 12-volt batteries required or any other 240-volt nonsense is required. So I think that's an amazing feature. Um, we also did something quite different. Um, what we did is we, the SmartFire box itself is actually quite small. Um, you could view it as roughly two cigarette boxes stacked on top of each other. It's roughly the size we're talking about if we were to just think about it in that perspective. Um, and this is pretty unique because most other systems in the market separate a display screen from a fan unit. Whereas we wanted to integrate it into all into the same um, box. You know, as I said before, a lot of our focus was on price. And so we wanted to make something that was cost efficient. If you can manufacture one box and has everything in it, then you're going to be ahead of the competition. And also that means that you don't need to have wires running everywhere. I've seen some photos of other systems with wires all over the place and just look like an health, health, um, health and safety issue. So, you know, you don't want that. You want it to be small, convenient, easy to take with you and less complicated. So I think we sort of nailed all those kind of good points. Um, and I think it, one other key thing we've done right is get the algorithms right. Um, in the actual controller and with the firmware, there's a lot of smarts to running a barbecue controller on you. How, open, uh, how do you detect the lid opens? Um, how do you detect if it's just wind instead? Um, how do you make certain you ramp up smoothly to your target temperature instead of doing a massive overshoot? Um, we've had many teams actually move across to our product because we were able to ramp them smoothly into target without actually going to overshoot, because everything else they had tried um, caused some issues. Um, and being able to keep your temperature on the same level um, targets this is so important for a competition and you know really good cooking at home yeah i i uh have seen some of those pictures of the graphs and they are just dead flat so that's uh that's that that's really impressive i i wanted to circle back to the um to the idea of using the power banks at competition i think that's a fantastic idea my next question though would be if this is a uh wi-fi enabled um, device, how would you go about connecting it to your phone at a comp when you're not at home with your Wi-Fi? Good question. Um, people normally hotspot it to their phone. Um, it requires a little bit of delicate dancing to get it set up, but you can easily just use an old phone with an old SIM card to get it going. Um, and there's quite a few teams out there who have done it. And so if you are in that kind of situation, you can just you know, find someone with a red smart fire plug to their smoker and ask them how they did it and or just read our support documentation where we've got some good um, steps on how to follow it. Um, we're also going to be releasing um, – you're kind of stealing my thunder, but um, we're also going to be releasing a Bluetooth version as well. It will have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And so it means if you're out somewhere where you don't have Wi-Fi, you can just use the Bluetooth functionality. And it can also go to the internet through your phone. So that will just make it more flexible for catering, competitions, camping. So, yeah, it would be pretty, uh, really easy to use. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And I just did think of one more question. You did mention earlier that this is a four-probe 
device, are they interchangeable between pit temp and food temp? Yeah, no, there is a set pit um, probe, um, i.e. it's socket one on the actual board. Um, and so it just expects that that one will be the one that controls the pit temperature for ambient because uh, the system just wants to pay attention to one as kind of the boss, let's say. Um, you can, however, use any combination of pit probes and food probes in any socket. You can use a food probe as a pit probe. Um, you can plug in three pit probes if you wanted to and monitor multiple sections of a large smoke if you wanted to, which some people do on um, large offsets. Um, so it's really flexible in terms of what hardware you use, but that first socket's always going to be the boss, let's say, of the controller. Ah, of course, right, because that socket number one would be what would tell, uh, would give the information to tell the fan to blow harder or less. Correct, correct. Ah, and this is what it. it listens to. Okay, I got it, got it. So I think you've uh, you've uh, given away the answer to uh, to what I was just about to ask you next. But uh, what does the future hold for Smartfire? Oh, okay. Um, well, we're planning to expand a little bit more heavily into the US and the UK um, with some domestic sales channels there. Um, we have this new pro version that we just covered off um, with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth coming um, in about a month's time to cover all the different places you could use it outside of home. Um, and, you know, that's been something that's come from the barbecue community. It's something really important to them. So, you know, we aren't just at home. We're sometimes on the road or camping. So, that's something that we're really proud of to get right, and we're trying to do it better than other Bluetooth systems we've seen out there. And by marrying up um, the internet and the internet database with Bluetooth, we can make it smarter. So you know which device is yours, and your phone automatically finds it. And there's all kinds of nice convenience things we're building in, just to make it a seamless process for people. Um, and we're going to have a better app to go with it. Um, the app at the moment is pretty good, but we're we're going to turbocharge that and make it so it's easy to personalize it and to be able to log on from multiple devices and from your actual computer as well. Um, and, you know, the main thing about smart fires is it's not something you bought in a blister pack from Bunnings. You know, this is a product that changes with time. Um, every month, you know, we release new features to it that just make the product better. So there's something exciting about how we do things at Smartfire. This is David Ong, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confession. If you're looking to get behind an Australian company that gets behind Australians, you need to check out Pitt Brothers Barbecue. They're a Brisbane-based business that are known for supporting our return servicemen and women. They have three pre-blended rubs and 15 individual ingredients, making it super easy for you to create your own unique taste sensation. My personal favourite is the rosemary, lemon and sea salt rub. It's sensational on chicken wings with a sweet barbecue sauce. They also stock premium Gigi lump charcoal which is grown and cooked in Queensland. While 2017 has been a big year, 2018 is going to be even bigger. They're launching a custom designed offset smoker, three premium gravies and are working with competition teams to develop some special new rub blends such as Porkapalooza by the Smoking Sappers. You can keep up with all the Pit Brothers news on Facebook and Instagram by following at Pit Bro BBQ. Right now, they're offering an exclusive deal for you Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. Head on over to pitbrothersbarbecue.com.au. That's P-I-T-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-B-Q. 
and use the word CONFESSIONS at checkout for a 10% discount. Once again, use CONFESSIONS at checkout to get your 10% discount. Okie dokie, Mark. Welcome into segment two. It's time now to get into the business side of what it is that you do. So first of all, to make sure I'm using the right terminology, how do you describe what you do? Do you call yourself an inventor, a manufacturer? What sort of uh, you know label do you put on it? Um, I think I'd prefer the, if I was going to choose a cheesy title, um, you know, having worked in the IT industry, you're really used to cheesy titles, but <laughs> I, I'd go with innovator um, because it's all about picking up what people have done before, having a good look at it, experimenting with it, understanding where it may have met what people need, where it may have fallen short, and then trying to innovate on top of that platform and, you know, the old phrase of standing on the shoulders of giants and hopefully making it 200% better. So I'd like to think of myself really as an innovator. And I kind of think that's sort of where my natural, you know, tendencies and my, my brain works. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. So, um, so what sort of skills should people have if, if there's other people out there who have ideas for, you know, products they want to get off the ground? Um, what sort of skills should they have if that's what they want to do? Well, it's a really hard one because such a range of personalities can succeed and succeed well. Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie called The Founder. It's about McDonald's and a um, guy called Ray Kroc. And you know, if, if you're one of those charismatic kind of leaders who just relentlessly won't give up, that certainly can work. Um, personally, coming from a bit more of an engineering background and being a bit more, I suppose, right brain focused, um, I would say that you need to have had some experience in at least a few of the major areas that you'll be dealing with. I have you come from hardware? It might be a you know a physical product like a smoker. So you know having those practical skills like welding is going to be pretty important to you. Um, you know, have you come from logistics and understand how to ship it out better to people? Have you come from business and understand how to run a P and L? Um, you know, have you come from marketing so you you have an idea about a book or something like that where you can market and lots and lots of people will buy it? Um, there's a couple of different ways about going about it, but I think you need to look at the major areas of any business or major areas of developing the product you're thinking about and go, do you have reasonable coverage of those areas and are you prepared to either pay for the rest or learn? So, yeah. So I guess if you analyze yourself and find that you have uh, that you're missing some skills that you might otherwise need, you'd have to be looking at at outsourcing those skills. What um, what tips would you have for um, for outsourcing? This is quite an interesting um, comment. Um, I've used a fair bit of outsourcing with Smartfire um, because the number of people who are running around who happen to be experts in injection molding is surprisingly few. I'm certainly not one of them. Um, likewise, you know, if you're looking at complicated electrical designs, you need to have a professional do the, um, that. You know, your TV has these circuit boards that are crazily detailed and complex. You need someone who understands that and understands it well to be able to do it for you. So you will find and identify why, when you're planning out a um, product, what areas you're going to need help with. Um, there's wonderful sites like Upwork that exist where you can find um, contractors for a reasonable price. 
Um, and again, this will come back to, have you managed people before? Do you know how to create a specification? Tell them exactly what you want. Even show them a little mock-up. You might have made out of cardboard if it's a physical thing. Uh, maybe some pictures of similar products and be able to really walk them through exactly what you want. Because you're going to be talking to someone probably out of side of your time zone who doesn't exactly understand English. Um, I am generalizing here, but it's often the case. Um, I had contractors from Romania, Ukraine, Palestine, Fiji, and UK uh, on some of my projects. So quite a mix of people there. Um, and so you've got to be able to coordinate these um, these folk into doing exactly what you want. And this is going to be an easy process. It's going to be a long process. And you're going to have to factor in a fair chunk of change to you know, cater for that as part of your development process. Ah, well, that sort of dovetails into uh, into what I was planning to ask you next. So once you've got your skills sorted and you know what skills you need, what sort of resources do people need to, to have available to them to get their concept off the ground? I think the thing that people always forget, and I actually think is the most important thing, especially after the last two years, is time. You'd have mm. heard that 10,000 hours... Is what it takes to roughly master something, especially if it's a golf or something like that. Um, I personally think it takes you at least a thousand hours to create a product. If it's a physical product, it's going to take you a thousand hours. Um, you know, I'm dealing with you know maybe the more complex end, and if you're dealing with something a little bit simpler, then sure you could get off the ground a fair bit faster. But if you're dealing with something vaguely as complicated as the Smart Fire with electronics and pace and packaging and logistics and all these wonderful things that you might not think of in your day one. Um, you know, I easily went through 1,800 hours in the first 18 months. Whew. You can um, get out the calculator and work it out, um, but it basically means that you work most nights, um, you're working at least six to seven days a week, um, you're clocking about five to eight hours minimum on a weekend, um, you're working to midnight most of the time at the start. Um, it's incredible the amount of effort that goes into it. So, you know, and on top of that, you're going to be also getting your contractors that we just mentioned to work on things as well. But you're going to be remembering that the cost of those contractors, you don't want them doing everything unless you happen to have a lot of money at your disposal. Um, plus also it's hard to call, um, control quality if it's too far from you. And so, you know, all of this is time. So hopefully your spouse doesn't mind you working most weekends and is pretty patient. Um, and the trick about all this is that's just the time to get it to market. That means you can go on Facebook and tell your friends you have something shiny to buy. Um, turn on your e-commerce site like Shopify, like I use, and go open up the doors for business. Um, now, Hopefully, at that point, you get some immediate interest. But that's kind of day one of the rest of the journey because suddenly you're going to find that logistics choose about 80% of your time. Yeah? Getting something, printing the order, getting the product, putting it into a box, wrapping the product before you put it into the box, putting the invoice in, maybe writing the thank you card. Importantly, the next step really takes a lot of time is getting the shipping label and putting on it. If you've got walking things down to your Aussie Post and you've got 100 packages in your hand and you're, you haven't actually paid for them in, in advance, um, 
you're going to be sitting at the Aussie Post counter for a while. Um, once you start moving through different systems of integration with logistics, it becomes more and more complex. Um, and you, you know, find yourself either hiring, you know, you know maybe I, I actually use um, a friend's son who's at uni who likes to have a part-time job. You know, he says, hey, doing my logistics these days. Um, otherwise, literally 30 hours to 40 hours of my week would just be blown away simply on packing things. Um, so time is time is definitely the enemy here. Um, yeah, and the other thing to bear in mind that's germane to the barbecue industry is, Ben, when do you normally do your barbecue? Like, when would you roughly do your heaviest period of barbecue if you're looking at the, the week? Uh, for me, I'd, I work, uh, I'm still in a traditional job, so for me, it's the weekends. Yeah, like most people. So um, I find the busy times being in the barbecue industry, um, and I'm sure a lot of folk would echo this if they're in catering or whatever, is from Thursday to Sunday night. Because people and you know, barbecue shop people would um, say the same thing. You know, people start thinking about barbecue about Thursday or Wednesday, sometimes Wednesdays. Um, they start thinking about barbecue, they go buy their supplies, they get their gas bottles if that's their thing, or their rubs, their woods, their charcoals, their meats. They start thinking about the extra things they'd like to buy and when they're in those shops. Um, and so sometimes you get a bunch of sales through smartphone on the you know, Wednesday, Thursdays. You, I can see all my graphs and it always picks up on Wednesday, Thursdays. Um, and then the support requests and posts and people just asking questions like, oh, Mark, how many chunks of wood do you throw on when you're setting up your ProQ? Um, you, know, you get a lot of you know, just normal chatter um, throughout the weekend. And so this means your spouse, if she's working a nine to five Monday to Friday, um, or he, um, you know, they're going to be looking at you over the, uh, at the coffee. You're going to have coffee out somewhere at a cafe and you're sitting there on your phone answering requests and doing all those kind of things. So, Time is definitely the enemy, um, and you have to become really good at kind of managing the time and trying to get some help early um, and training up people to you know, take on some of that load. So it's the hardest thing to manage. Anyone can come up with 10 or 20 grand between themselves and a few friends potentially if you have a really great idea, but the time to invest into a new product is what a lot of people don't factor in. They think it's just going to be easy, but time is the biggest challenge, definitely number one. In my book, <laughs> mate, that's very interesting. I sort of hadn't uh, hadn't thought of it that way, but um, yeah, sense of like multitasking as well would be uh, would be quite a quite a big part of it. Just from listening to what you were saying, then. Oh, certainly. Yeah, you're trying to get orders out. You're trying to deal with employees. You're trying to deal with stock levels, retailers, invoicing, bookkeeping, and trying to get new products out the market. It, it becomes difficult. So, um, yeah, it's a good challenge. So Highly this- recommend it. So this is going to be a little bit, a uh, little bit off track. But from your background in in product development, do you find that um, people that that work in that area tend to uh, drop off once the product is ready for sale? Because once the product is selling, that's a different kind of work. It's that repetitive logistic work rather than the creative, innovative, uh, exciting, making breakthroughs, building a new project phase. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, simply because a lot of those folk um, just haven't actually worked outside the area. 
a lot of product development folk have worked in product development since the start or maybe as business analysts. Um, whereas I have worked in support environments in the past in IT and you know, managing systems over the long term. So, you know, as part of that is, you know, keeping the lights on and keeping it ticking over. So you're used to kind of, you know, um, being available 24 by 7. Um, whereas I think it would be a challenge for some folk. Um, and they think it's all about the fun of launching it and having a little bit of success at the start. But as I said before, that's just day one. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to Travis at TB2 uh, Smokers. Um, Travis has uh, created the Kettle Cone, which has been doing amazingly well online. And you see lots of awesome photos of people enjoying it and having fun with their Kettle Cone. Um, but, you know, as Travis will attest, you know, he's, you know, he's become a friend over the last uh, six months or so. Um, Day one was, you know, first influx of orders and then the real work started and he works crazy hours, you know, pumping out orders to get them out to people in a timely fashion. So you always have to remember success is great, but it brings its own problems. So just be prepared for it and it's a long haul. If you're going to be doing a product, you're going to be looking at it for about three to five years at least, hopefully a lot longer. But that's kind of the commitment. That's the commitment you're kind of making to your initial batch of customers. I'll see you through a full generation of this product. So you are them that you're going to be keeping the lights on, answering the support queries whenever they need to for at least three to five years. So that's a bit, it's a big commitment. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't uh, don't sort of factor in when they're looking at these things. But yeah, that's uh, that. Yeah, if you decide to do a catering business and you know got lots of friends who do it on the side and so forth, the great thing about that is if you have a really bad weekend. Um, you can go home, you know, stop collaborating, listen together and go, oh, is this really for us? And you can literally just go, yeah, cool, um, not going to do any more. Um, but, you know, once you have a product and you've had a hard weekend and you haven't slept much and so forth, you know, you just have another week ahead of you. So you need to be careful about it and really commit to it. That is a very interesting point about the difference between a service and a product, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we were talking before about um, resources to get involved. That's how we sort of struck off on that uh, on, on that tangent there. Um, I see a lot of products these days that are uh, that start out life on crowdfunding. Where do you stand on crowdfunding? Do you have a particular preferred platform? Um, interestingly, with crowdfunding, I'm not a huge believer. Um, I think there's been some amazing successes in the industry. Now, I think at a certain point, especially um, you know, coming also from IT, there's two fetishes in the IT industry. There's um, startups and in the product industry and sort of consumers, it's sort of the crowdfunding. Hey, I saw this massive crowdfunding thing. It was amazing. I bought it and it's so cool. Um, and they get kind of pulled along in it. So whereas I, I kind of look a little bit more skeptically um, at crowdfunding campaigns. My... <sighs> For better or worse, I think crowdfunding is mostly about marketing. A lot of people get into it and they go, oh, I need to do crowdfunding because of funding or so forth, so forth, so forth. But to a certain extent, I believe that if you don't have a product that you believe in, that you can see that you will sell at least as many um, items as will cover your manufacturing costs, then don't do it. What are you faking about your product to that point? That means you aren't ready to go. How much of your prototype is actually real? 
How much is it ready to go? How are you actually experienced enough to get it over the line? Um, how long will you um, take to send out your orders to your customers afterwards? Um, I, I don't think I actually have ever got something from a crowdfunding project, no matter how successful they are, within even three months of them closing. Um, I constantly have to you know, fill out extra surveys and address forms and so forth. And I think people don't realise just how much expense and complication crowdfunding will add to them as a potential manufacturer. You have to fund about a video. You're looking at at least six to ten grand for that fancy um, Kickstarter video you saw. Um, even if you got it filmed by a mate and then did some post-prod, you're still looking at about four grand, surprisingly. Um, if you then go ahead and you've actually made some decent sales and potentially even exceeded your um, you know, fairly realistic goal, this means that you then need to integrate the back-end Kickstarter platforms into your address and logistics systems. And as you may have seen, if you personally experienced it, they often lose addresses, they forget what you ordered, because there's just a huge data problem of how you get it out from the Kickstarter system into your ordering system. And there's companies out there that charge good money for that. But then the Kickstarter companies realize, oh, oops, that's going to cost me another $4 a piece just to get the information out. I don't really have $4 to spare per product. Um, and so you can actually run heavily at a loss by the time you finish your Kickstarter campaign. Um, I do think they're amazing. I definitely think they have their place. Um, I'm not saying I'm not going to use one in the future. I may well do that. But it would be for marketing. And people need to remember that it's purely a marketing tool. And if you're doing it simply to get yourself over some you know, manufacturing cost you're not quite prepared to do, then I would really challenge you, are you actually confident your product will sell normally? Ooh. Tough truths. Yeah, very tough truths. Yeah. Yeah, pulling no, uh, pulling no punches there. <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of me. <laughs> yeah. Mate, that's what we're all here for. That's, uh, that, that's exactly why we're here. So, all right, I've got my idea. I've got some skills. I've got some resources. What's the first step I need to take? Have some fun with it. Generally, you know, I was just a bit too serious on Kickstarter, but you know, have some fun. Don't let the the potential mountain of effort of doing a product get in the way. Um, I never let it get in the way of me because I was just doing it for myself. So, you know, focus in on that. Um, so many of the best products I've heard about have been to answer a person's problem or their friend. I heard of a weird one on the weekend. Apparently, this guy. This is truly bizarre, and I apologise in advance, but he was printing cat photos onto swimwear because a friend wanted that for her birthday and she knew that he could print things onto swimwear, so he did it for her as a birthday present. And then they're talking to their friends and they were all very excited by this crazy idea um, and it's taken off and it's been a massive, you know, I think they did a Kickstarter too, um, and it's been massively publicised, and obviously they made a few sales out of it. So, But that answered a particular problem that the person had, and I think you need to sit there with a pencil and paper, have some fun with it, work out what you'd do, what it would look like, um, and you know, just take a go at, you know, will I actually make something that's worthwhile or is it too hard or have I lost interest? If you haven't lost interest 
take a stab at estimating the unit cost. Add up all the little bits in the um, box or whatever happens to be the you know the printing costs uh, in this guy's co- uh, kind of case, the swimwear costs, the shipping costs, whatever happens to be, and get those costs, double it, because that will get closer to your actual costs once you get it through to manufacturing and actually have people doing it for you. Uh, then double again. That will give you your roughly speaking. This is a bit of an old rule. Um, your rough SRP. So once you have that, compare that cost against what other people are selling it for in the market and see whether or not you're completely um, out. If you're not completely out, um, then you know, that's the time to go back and look more carefully at what you think it would take to um, actually build it. And then compare that against your bank balance and what options you have there. Um, and that's the time to get kind of a bit more serious and have another go at the costs. And then you know, make a simple... Um, prototype. There's a wonderful thing you really should um, go and have a look into. It's called the Lean Startup Methodology. Um, basically, the idea is that before you take two thing, things too far, you really map out what your idea is. It has the concept of a hypothesis, which is, I believe if a product had X, Y, Z or did this and that, that it would answer this particular need in the market. And you map it all out and how you'd sell it and roughly what you sell it for and all these kind of good things. It's a bit like a business plan on a page for a product. And it's a great tool. And then you can actually, you know, they get quite kooky with this, you know, with making cardboard models and just making simple pictures. And it actually can be quite silly and quite a bit of fun, actually, once you kind of relax and get into it. Um, And then you can pantomime what your, the sales process would be with a potential customer and actually just act out, you know, this is your problem. Can we role play this as you were having a conversation? And you sit there and you talk about your cardboard model that's meant to look like your product and a lot will tumble out from that process as whether or not potentially you just had a couple too many beers the night before and maybe the idea isn't that great. Um, or it's absolute magic and you really need to look into it. Or, and the most, this is the most likely thing, is it's a good idea, but you need to change a few things to get what's called product and market fit, where you actually are answering things that people actually care about. And once you have that, you're onto a winner. It's time to really kind of get prepared for actually doing it. Right. Yeah, so lots of homework involved and... Uh... <laughs> And planning and second guessing and, uh, and and working all that sort of stuff out. So yeah, a lot, a lot of that. And the key thing there, and key theme there, is get your idea and talk to people about it. And some people are really secretive about their ideas, which is nonsense. If we go back to the original premise that it takes a thousand hours at least to make a product, it's unlikely too many people out there will have the same amount of passion as you do to have your idea. So talk to your friends, talk to people in the industry that you um, you, know, you trust and you don't think would commercialise it tomorrow um, because often it's far too much effort for them or it's outside what they're up to for them to bother about it, but they'll give you really good insight on whether or not it's a good idea. So, yeah, go and talk to people about it. All righty. So from the prototype phase, how do you move from the prototype phase into the manufacturing phase? Um. Well, you kind of have to get serious about um, 
the physical design because you know I come from a physical product, so I'll focus in on physical products. Um, it's a lot tumbles out from the physical design. You know, how big is it? What are the parts in it? What materials are involved? How complex is it to assemble and those kind of things? Once you start figuring out, you know, on a part-by-part basis and how it would actually stitch together, and again, you can be using paper and pencil. You don't need to be too fancy with this at this point. But then you need to get someone who is really good at that, like a 3D modeler, to do the outside casing and what it would look like. And sometimes that 3D model is a good thing to take again to your friends and go, does this look attractive? Um, is this does this is this big enough, the right size, the right colour for what you need in your industry? Um, all those kind of good things. And then you get a little bit more affirmation that, yes, you are on the right path. And you go to the next step of what's inside. And sometimes that will change the outside. But start with the outside, then go towards in the middle. And then you get your full product prototype of what's actually physically in it. Um, that's a really good place to be. Um, some people go about they're just doing it in a rough little model really, and they get the parts from J Carr and Bunnings. I spent literally, I don't know, entire weekend standing in the Bunnings plumbing's aisle and playing with different plumbing parts and couplers to figure out what the adapters could look like. And I still do that every now and then. Um, it's a really useful process just to get a prototype together. Sometimes you're just using rough parts. You know, it could be using cardboard or pieces of tin, and you're just getting it together, and it hinges together, and it kind of gets a result. And you go, okay, cool, and you learn from that. And that's kind of your prototyping stage. It can actually be really rough. Um, once you get a little bit further along and you're prepared to pay money for 3D injection, uh, 3D printed parts, um, actual tools manufacture and you know, parts being cut by laser and CNC and actually machine to your spec, um, that's a, quite a different stage. And I'd say that's like pre-production. Um, you want to have a very good idea of what it looks like and what it work, how it works well before you start um, creating full specifications for companies because it will affect the price. It will do all kinds of things. So you want to have a good working model pretty early. Right. Okay. So – that takes you up to the manufacturing phase. You've got your your tool makers and your 3D printers and your laser cutters doing all their bits. So what work is then involved? Um, you were talking about logistics before, getting from manufacturing to distribution. Um, well, there's, there's also another iceberg of effort. Um, you'll swear like a sailor as you bump into five-week cycles for different um, prototyping runs. Um, then you'll deal with three weeks delay from shipping companies because you didn't label it as the right type of shipping and you have to pay customs over in China instead of in Australia. And, um, you learn a lot. Logistics will become um, one of the things you comment most to your friends about as to why you hate your life at that particular point in time <laughs> because it really it really is a challenge. Um, I used to have weekly rants about Australia Post. It was normally on a Monday and it became Post Mondays to my friends. Um, you, you just have to learn about it. You know, plan for it to take six months, and then you won't disappoint yourself too much. Wow, to go from the manufacturing stage into distribution, six months. At least. Wow. Kind of brings us back to the resources question, doesn't it? <laughs> have you got the resources to, you, to, it, to keep it going for six months? This is assuming that you aren't 
um, building it yourself. Um, going back to Travis's example, it's a lot easier for him because, you know, he goes into the shed and starts welding it. Um, whereas, you know, if you're taking it over to China and you're getting it made there or Australian companies, wherever it happens to be made, you've got to factor in a lot of time. There's at least five-week cycles any production run, and then you're going to have your shipping delay. So, and that's between iterations. So if you get something wrong, another five weeks. Oh, that must be maddening. Oh, it is. But you become better at it and you're ready to do your next company after a while. (laughs) (laughs) You you, you learn a lot from the process and it's part of the fun. And again, you you can't be getting into it. I don't believe this. But if you're getting into this on a small scale, on a personal scale where you're launching a business, you have to be pretty passionate about it. Um, And I think you also can't be too stressed about it. You have to be prepared for it to take time. You haven't quit your day job. You're still doing that and you just keep on plugging along. Mm, Solid advice there. So you're obviously very very social media savvy. What, What role has social media played in all this for you? Oh, I'd, I'd love for yeah. I, I don't know if I am that savvy, but um, <laughs> learning about it. Um, ninety percent of smart fires are sold through Facebook. That's my simple statistic. Um, and you know, if you told that to many companies, they'd be, you know, many traditional companies. I think they'd be surprised too. Um, you need to experiment with Facebook ads and work out how they work. Um, once you've built up a little bit of a following, um, you need to be part of related food and barbecue groups. And the main thing, and I've touched on this before, is you need to spend time with your customers. Um, if they want to talk about um, chicken recipes and so forth, you mean, you know, ignore whatever else you're doing. Sit there and enjoy yourself and have a conversation because halfway through the conversation, I can guarantee you're going to get some piece of inspiration or encouragement or something that's going to help you out on your work. So just make time for people. Uh, just number one, if if a message comes, just drop, drop what you're doing within reason and just pay attention to them. Um, that's really important, I believe. And I think that will help you out with social media as well because you start understanding how people perceive you um, when they read about your product, what they are actually reading, which is quite different. Um, when they see a picture, what do they see? Um, the number of times I've been told on face through Facebook ads that I should get out of barbecue because I'm calling brisket, uh, I, I was calling a pulled pork a brisket and all kinds of things. You deal with all kinds of interesting people online. So you need to be able to have a thick skin. Um, you need to be able to smile and nod and go, okay, cool, that's great. Um, and um, you know, just, just deal with that and roll with that because, you know, social media is all about, you know, keeping up the community feel um, and, you know, being present and actually posting regularly is quite important. So just being part of it all. Yeah, I think uh, I think being responsive and, uh, and and posting regularly is definitely all all part of the uh, the recipe for success. So I guess my next the next thing I'd like to know is um, what what's been your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? Oh, I think I touched on this before. Logistics. Logistics is something you really don't expect as being a real issue. And I've heard read previously about companies who did successful Kickstarter campaigns who never managed to actually deliver a product. The reason why is logistics. It is incredible. 
when you need to get a product and put it into another box and be able to securely ship it across um, the world, it becomes an absolute nightmare. Um, how you pack it, um, what it's wrapped in, where you source the cardboard from, where you get your packing tape from, where you actually can physically pack it yourself or hire someone or a family friend to do it, um, that all becomes a massive issue. So logistics companies, they'll lose things. They'll take 14 days of instead of three days when you promise someone that you give it, get it to them a fortnight ago. Um, I recommend you get onto an Australia Post commercial contract as soon as humanly possible. You want to have an e-commerce API um, access, and then it, then you take out Australia Post customer service angle. Because if you're dealing with Australia Post directly over a normal branch, um, you will shoot them or they'll shoot you or it will not end in a friendly way. Um, <laughs> because the typical Australia Post branch does not have to deal with a business. There are th- um, places called business hubs and you can Google them. And it's typically close into the CBD or there might be even multiple of them. Uh, for me, it's the Port Melbourne business hub. And if you go in there, they understand international shipping and labeling and customs forms and all those wonderful things that you will need to learn pretty quickly at the start. Um, so once you have your contract and you can you can just stand up and shout and promise to hold your breath until they give you one, and eventually you'll get through. Um, get your contract, and then you can tie it into systems like Ready to Ship, which is an amazing system that sits there, and it interprets your customer orders into shipping labels. Ooh. And you think that that is a easy thing, and you think, when you think, oh, I'll sell something, you go, okay, cool, um, I'll get out the texter, write Ben and O on it, send it to Ben on the Gold Coast, and it'll be easy and done. Then you need to take it into the shop. You need to get a postage label, all this kind of thing. You want to have to have all pre-printed. You don't want to have to copy and paste names and addresses from one system to another. Um, I did that right at the start, and it nearly drove us crazy. And that was only 50 orders. That was our initial batch. I mean, it took us, I think, a week just to get that part done onto an actual label onto the right box. So don't underestimate the logistics component. Um, and internationally, sign up with DHL. Don't use FedEx. That's my my honest feedback and my best advice to anyone out there is just go straight to DHL. Do not use anyone else. That would have saved me thousands of dollars and many grey hairs if I'd just known that at the start. Ah, some very top tips in there. I like all that stuff about the <laughs> uh, the the Australia Post API and the the pre printing, the, the the automatic printing of the labels and that. That's that's very cool. Yeah, and you can get them to give you the labels for free and all kinds of things as soon as you get onto that contract. Um, it's amazing because the amount of effort to get onto that, they require a certain volume. And so it's nearly counterintuitive that they're actually slowing you down as an Australian business from actually doing well until you have enough volume. It, it's, it's the most mind-bending thing possible. But if you happen to be working out a colo space, sometimes there's some co-location spaces that actually share a contract and then you can use their contract to order at the start. And that's a really neat way of getting around the problem if you want to do that. So look into those colo spaces where you can get a shared desk and you could potentially um, uh, use a shared contract between multiple companies and that by thereby hit the volume requirement. And then when you're independently doing that kind of volume by yourself, you just get your own contract, if that makes sense. Oh, what a good idea. Mm. But it takes a while to learn all this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what we're here for, mate. We're here for the shortcuts. (laughs) 
So what's been your biggest success then and to what uh, do you attribute it? Um, it was definitely the night we went live um, with sales. Um, went live, made an ABA post about it and basically we hit the break-even point um, of hitting those major manufacturing costs in the first four hours. Wow. It was amazing. Um, so that was definitely the, the best feeling um, and that kind of validated, yes, I'm doing the right thing. People actually put down their money. Fantastic. Um, let's go for launch. Um, well, I was already, I was already pot committed because I already done um, all the um, manufacturing costs by then and they actually had them ready to go. Um, so that was the big thing for me and I can attribute that to the ABA group and yeah, um, letting little old Mark have a post and advertising his new Aussie product that's really helped. Wow. Hats off to the yeah. ABA. Yep, indeed. So and that's why I sponsor them these days. So you know, kind of you, know, you turn them to turn around and kind of help out the community afterwards. Yeah, it's always good to uh, to give back to people that have helped you. So that's good to know. So considering the challenges and successes that we've just discussed, um, how would you rate the profession of being an innovator? Um, I'd give it a solid eight out of ten. It's challenging. It's very challenging. Um, it can be stressful. Um, you know, you kind of respons- become responsible like any other small business if you're doing it full time, which I am now for the past six months. You're kind of responsible for, you know, keeping a roof above your head and all those kind of good things. So it does add onto you becoming a small business owner like that. Um, so it's a little bit more stressful than a nine to five. Um, but it's a lot of fun. You learn a lot. Um, it's, it's going to expose you to things you just wouldn't do from the corporate world or wherever else you might be working at that particular point. Um, it's definitely going to give you life skills. Um, but yeah, I suppose you need to keep your eye on whether or not it's working out for you. You're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. It's nice to see businesses out there that see the problems in the world and seek to solve them. Clean Heat Barbecue is one of these businesses. A charcoal and briquette manufacturer, Clean Heat prides themselves on being the most eco-friendly brand on the market today. Harvesting from an invasive species that's destroying valuable farmland in Namibia, Clean Heat Barbecue's products are sustainable, eco-friendly, 100% natural and renewable. Most importantly for barbecue enthusiasts, their products are clean burning and long lasting. It is the fuel of choice for many top barbecue teams in Australia. And Clean Heat Barbecue is known for being strong supporters of the Australian barbecue scene, sponsoring several competitions every season. At Clean Heat Barbecue, their motto is the four F's, fire, food, and friendship. When those three come together, you'll be fueling your passion. To find your local distributor of Clean Heat Barbecue products, Follow Clean Heat Charcoal on Facebook at Clean Heat BBQ and on Instagram at Clean underscore Heat Charcoal and send Abel a PM. Okie dokie, Mark. It's now segment three of our uh, of our episode of this podcast and that means it's listener question time. So we've got uh, a whole bunch of great questions from, from the Smoking Hot Confessions fans out there who've been listening and uh, I'm going to put them to you now. Are you ready to go? Certainly. All right, let's do it. Hi Ben, uh, this is Chris from Swing Out Bros. It's Mark, congratulations on such a great product. Uh, I personally use Snipe Fire on our um, Pro-Q. 
Um, the market for barbecue is growing in Australia, in which it's flooded with all different kinds of different temperature probes locally and abroad. Are there uh, any plans to come, you know, to compete with this market? Awesome. Thanks. Hi, Chris. Um, yeah, there's certainly quite a few options on the market. Um, seems like every few months we get a new one. Um, the thing is, I'm quite surprised by the price that's been charged. Um, going back to why I got into SmartFire, I just thought the prices were a bit ridiculous. So I think we're going to go through a period of consolidation. Um, you know, I've carefully analysed the market. I've, um, you know, that's kind of my background in corporate strategy and product dev is to analyse what's out there and why they're charging so much and what they're up to and those kind of things. So, and kind of what their sort of market um, – addressable market could be. So I think we're going to see some consolidation. There's too many out there. They're charging too much. Um, and so, you know, I think with SmartFire, with a newly refreshed um, main controller with Wi-Fi, we're going to take a you know, great product to just be amazing. Um, and we're going to have an expanded product range. So I think with, you know, 2018, it's definitely going to be a space to watch. You know, we'll have better features, support, and broad smoker compatibility and a better price. So I think we're going to see a bit of an upset in the market. Um, you know, I've got some good things planned. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, though, I can come up with whatever strategies I'd like to. But I think the most important thing for us, and there's something I'd ask the Smoking Hot Confessions team with, is, you know, when people ask, oh, what, what product do you use and recommend? Um, I'd really ask that you, you know, kind of look out there. If you happen to be a SmartFire owner, as I know quite a few are, um, take, a, take a moment to recommend SmartFire to that international friend. Uh, take a moment to explain why you like it. Um, you know, might be the product, might be the support, whatever happens to be. You know, being the advocate for Australian business is definitely appreciated by me. Um, and in the long run, I think it's good for us all. Yeah, definitely. We need to, uh, to to get behind Australian companies and uh, and all uh, all help each other out, don't we? Definitely. G'day, Mark. It's Nigel from the Gold Coast. How does cooking at a consistent temperature affect what you put on the plate? And can an Australian contraption like yours take over the world? And what's your plans for global domination? <laughs> hey, Nigel. Um, having a consistent cooking temperature means you know, you know roughly what went into the meal that you're cooking um, in terms of inputs of heat. Um, it means that you can, if you're doing a consistent temperature, it means you know exactly what went in. So it means it's easy to replicate that perfect dish that you cooked last weekend. Um, for instance, you know, every time I cook you know, my favourite scotch fillet for friends, um, I know exactly what temperature I'm setting it to. You know, it happens to be 290 Fahrenheit, you know, incidentally, for the reverse here. So... Yeah, I, I always cook that because I just know it ends with a perfect result. Um, whereas if your smoker temperature is up and down, up and down, you never quite know, you know, what was the magic you managed to pull off that, you know, time three months ago? Um, how do you do it again? So being able to pull it up, being able to control it, being able to look at a graph of what your smoker did, I think that's pretty important. So it means you end up being a better cook. So I think it's, it's a pretty good feature to have. Um, and per the last question from Chris, um, we're refreshing the SmartFire controller lineup. Um, we're 
adding new things that expand it to catering and um, catering and commercial use. Um, so I'm going to have a broader Ameri- uh, appeal base for you know, our products. And so I really hope in 2018 we're taking on and actually maybe even closing out a few competitors. So um, excuse the pun, but we hope to smoke the competition. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> 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 All righty, next question. Hi, I hope I've uh, got the right number. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm from the Gold Coast, and uh, I hope this is the uh, Smoking Hot Confessions helpline. I've got a confession to make. I'm a, I'm a stick burner, and uh, I want to know if I can get some help. Hi, Mark. Um, congrats on your recent Paul Macquarie collaboration success, the starters. If it's possible, uh, how could I apply... Um, the smart fire to my stick burner uh, to help me out with um, maybe getting some temp control firebox. Thanks for the question. Wait. Uh, thanks, Cameron. Um, Port Mac with the Smoking Hot Smart Fires team was great fun. Um, I'm currently working on a solution for stick burners. Um, it's a bit of a hard nut to crack. Um, if you've looked at you know, many of the offset sort of um, air intakes, they all change. They're all quite different. So, you know, having an adapter that attaches to that yet doesn't melt, um, even if it's kind of metal then attached to something else, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, I think they will come up with some interesting ideas um, in this space, and I'm actually looking forward to launching it over the next two months. So, may I suggest you get in touch with us and um, maybe say hello. Um, and we can show you some of the prototypes and some of the ideas we're having. Get your feedback. Hi, Ben. It's Anthony from the Gold Coast. And this is one for a couple for market Smartfire. Uh, obviously, I absolutely love the, the product. Um, I have a Smartfire myself and, uh, and use it quite, uh, quite often whenever uh, I fire up the, the Pro-Q uh, smoker. Um, Mark, how long did it take you from the actual commencement of the prototype design to finally having a product to, to sell on a retail front and uh, is there any exciting uh, product developments in, in the works that uh, us Smartfire fans can uh, look forward to in the uh, in the future and uh, mate I just wanted to, to say as well that um, from my experience with uh, Smartfire you absolutely provide an excellent customer service uh, whenever I've had any questions, uh, I've I've left them on the uh, Smartfire uh, Facebook page, and uh, mate, no time at all. You return uh, return an answer. So thank you very much, mate. And I absolutely love it. Thanks, Anthony, for the support. It's really appreciated. Um, well, I built Smartfire for myself at the start. Um, that took about three to four months to get the hardware and a very basic app going. I mean, it was it, it was rigged up in a jiffy box and held together by duct tape effectively. Um, you really don't want to see the soldering. I've actually kept them um, just as a museum piece for future generations as just how badly you can solder something. Um, and, but, you know, in that process, it was pretty tough. Um, I was up to midnight a bunch of times, you know, just trying to figure out these electrical challenges I was having, you know, why I couldn't see temperatures accurately. And, and you know, th- that was a bit of a nightmare. But, you know, I got a product going in about four months. 
Um, and that was pretty constant effort. So if you're looking at you know how long does it take to build something, I'd say about four months if you if you don't know it already. Um, and I certainly didn't know electronics, so it was quite an interesting curve. And I, I was up to lean my dad, who was an electrical engineer in the, back in the day. Um, so he was able to give me some good pointers. wasn't really up to help me out much, but definitely um, kept me sane during that period. Um, once I got it going, um, and it was interesting because some folk on the ABA actually asked me, oh, when are you, when are you going to commercialise this? Um, and that was something I really didn't expect. Um, and then I think it took a year from that point to get to a commercial stage. So about a year is, is the answer. It takes you about six months to figure out what you're going to do and what you need to do, and then about six months, as I said before, to actually get into manufacturing and out the door. Hi, this is Brett from the Gold Coast. Uh, I have a question from for Mark from Smartfire. Mate, if tech and money had no limits, what feature would you love to see incorporated on the Smartfire? Mate, it could be... You know, something totally way out there or something that's super special that it's just been too hard so far. Mate, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks. <laughs> um, great question, Brett. Um, you find this strange, but for me, if no money was no object, um, then I get multiple teams working on the actual product design. I'd I'd work out a new enclosure or new interface into it where you could wrap the probes and it all worked and touch screens and this and that. Um, wireless probes, you name it, I'd, I'd have it all in this beautiful package that was waterproof and just worked and was hardy. You could drop it, you could kick it, and it, it, it'd just be perfect. Um, that would be a dream. And to do that kind of thing takes so much money and time. It's just crazy. Um, but, yeah, that's what I'd love to work on if, if I was able to perfect something. Um, another thing is connectivity. Um, connectivity is a pain in the ass. Um, you know, we shouldn't need to configure internet for everything that we turn on in our house. Um, it should just work anywhere. Um, in Australia, potential future technology is a thing called narrowband LTE. Um, basically, it works like GSM. It's designed for these small uh, internet-enabled devices like the SmartFire. Um, and it just allows a small amount of data to be published up, a bit like the sensor readings and you set in the temperature. Um, but it means you don't need to do any setup. You don't need to connect it to your Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or whatever. It just connects home to the internet just by itself, just sitting in the backyard. So I think that would be amazing. Uh, I think we're a long way off, and there's a few architectural problems to come over. But if I had you know, unlimited funds, then you know, I suppose I'd help push that out across all the different countries and make certain there's a constant standard uh, because they do use different things in Europe and the US. And if there's enough money behind it, you get everyone to standardize. That'd be amazing. Yeah, I reckon uh, waterproofing would be a good one. Yeah, it would be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, waterproofing, um, sandstorm proofing. I've seen customers running smart fires um, and it was covered in um, snow. Um, there's all kinds of things for those good old um, Canadians. Um, I've seen some amazing photos of smart fire running at minus 15. Oh, wow. That's a good, uh, a, a good indicator of its ability to work under stress. Oh, it is. It's well past what the laboratory tested it for at minus 10. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Hi, Mark. I'm from Gloucester, from Gloucester, New South Wales. My question to you is what is the hardest thing you've had to program when doing the smart fire? Thanks. Um, easily the firmware. Um, I came from a web background 
And unfortunately, I never did proper computer science at uni. So getting down and dirty with the C language uh, and microcontroller code, that was definitely the hardest thing to do. Hi, Mark. This is Adam from Brisbane. Um, I just had a, a quick question on the smart fire system. Um, mate, I'm not very tech savvy. I'm just wondering how easy these uh, systems are to set up and monitor and control for us who are a little bit behind the times with technology. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, okay. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an easy process, but we've got a great support guide um, that walks you through it. The app is fairly um, user-friendly. It's been designed from that purpose of making it easy for folks to get connected. Um, we have a great you know, user guide that accompanies it and you know, laying out the step-by-step so you know all the other things around it. Um, and that makes it pretty easy to get going. And as we mentioned before, we've got this new uh, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi version coming out. So this will make it really easy, just kind of nearly even you walk up to it and it asks you if you want to configure it. And it kind of makes it a lot easier and simpler with less steps to get your unit online. And it also makes it easier if you don't have actually internet or you have bad Wi-Fi and all those kind of cases. So I think, you know, wait a month if you're worried about technology. Um, we're going to have something that's an absolute dream to set up. Hi, Mark. This is Will from Singleton. How do you see technology changing the future of barbecue? Thank you. Oh, it's really interesting. I um, don't know if you caught it, but General Electric rocked up to the South by Southwest Festival at Austin a few years back, and they made this giant smoker. And they ha- basically had a bunch of General Electric um, scientists and barbecue folk um, standing around measuring everything they could from humidity, temperature. They, I think they had some IR temperature sensors, all kinds of things, trying to think um, their gimmick was you know, cooking better brisket kind of thing. I think that was pretty amazing. Um, a lot of the stuff that they are using is not within range for us to buy. Um, a lot of the stuff I can't even buy, I can't even find online. Um, so I think some of that trickle-down technology will help us over the f- next few years with uh, humidity sensors that work at high heat, um, internal cameras that we can film our cooks um, again at high heat. You know, Running something on a smoker is actually a pretty hostile environment. So I think it's going to be amazing. So um, I think as we go forward, I don't know if you've ever had the, been fortunate enough to attend the Tuffy uh, Stone Masterclass, but I highly recommend it. He has always been focused about heat and smoke. And, you know, his team name's Cool Smoke, and that's kind of comes from their original philosophy about how they would run their smokers. Um, part of the, his observations, and he was, you know, he's known as the professor in barbecue circles, and part of his relentless sort of focus was on keeping those two in check. And, but during that process, he noticed that humidity was a major factor. It wasn't just the fact that he was using smaller sticks to have a more even smoke burn, but the fact that was the um, sticks were actually releasing um, moisture as they took off. And it was actually the South by Southwest. Um, it's actually kind of related because the, uh, the General Electric guys found the same thing. They were trying to work out why one cook was a lot better than the other cook. And then they noticed with the fuel burn, they weren't using small amounts of fuel. They were using massive amounts of fuel and big loads. So it was a lot harder for them to tell. But, you know, with computers, they figured out what Tuffy at Stone had figured out one morning, um, you know, just watching his smoker burn. 
that you know, by controlling your fuel and your moisture and your heat, those three need to be in conjunction. So I think the technology of barbecue is going to come a long way as soon as we get our hands uh, in controlled humidity. You know, I've got some plans in that space for early next year too. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Hey, Mark, this is Pete from Oklahoma City. I, I love the look of your product, and I'm, I'm super looking forward to it coming to America. But I was wondering why you went for Wi-Fi over Bluetooth. Hey, Peyton. Um, glad to have you on the show. Um, first comment, mate. Um, 30% of SmartFire customers are actually from the U.S. So, yeah, quick plug there. Free international shipping. Get on it. Um, jump on board. Um, so, with the Bluetooth... Um, as you may have picked up earlier from our discussion and sort of why I kind of built SmartFire, Bluetooth simply doesn't have the range. Um, you know, I walk, you know, 10, at 10 metres, most Bluetooth systems have issues if they don't have line of sight. Um, you know, I have Bluetooth monitoring systems here where I can tra uh, track the signal strength and so forth of different embedded systems. And so I've done some, a lot of testing myself. There's outdoor systems that do a lot better line of sight, um, but generally speaking, you, 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 you leave your house and you won't have access to that Bluetooth signal. Um, so that's why I designed it originally to solve my particular use case. I've been wanting to go down to that pub um, with Wi-Fi, so it would be internet connected. Um, strangely enough, and which, is a, which, which is opposite to the way most companies have gone about it, they've done Bluetooth or radio solutions or you know, what I, one company they've now added on a quite an expensive Wi-Fi adapter for their radio setup. Um, but I went about it the other way. I engineered it for the internet first. Interestingly, what I'm doing now is actually adding Bluetooth back because I think Bluetooth with an internet-connected system is actually a really good thing. You can identify what product you're trying to connect via Bluetooth. You can do all kinds of things to make it even easier to set up that Bluetooth, and you can do it automatically. So um, by marrying the two, I think you end up with a good system. Um, Wi-Fi by itself is pretty good. Bluetooth by itself is less so. But together, I think it's going to be amazing. This is Jay. I'm one of the co-founders of the Australasian Barbecue Alliance, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. Alrighty, Mark, we're at the end of this episode, but uh, before I let you go, I have one question to ask you. What would be your top three pieces of advice for people who have an idea for a product they'd like to get off the ground? Cool. Um, write it down, do the lean startup kind of canvas, and then go talk to your friends about it, i.e. Pr prove the idea. Actually getting it going, make certain you have buy-in from your family about the amount of time you're about to invest into it, time, money, um, and, you know, potential loss opportunities doing other things. Um, that's really important because you're in it for the long haul. So if your family isn't on board or not really across what you're up to, you know, <laughs> you're going to need to have a very patient um, partner. Um, and lastly, you know, try and have fun with it. If you're getting into something just to make uh, money from it, it's unlikely you'll be successful as a small business owner. You need to have a bit of a passion for it um, or a lot of passion for it, as I kind of do because I love barbecue. So, you know, if you, it's something that you really want to and you can see your life as being kind of your life's work, get into it and have fun. And when it gets tough, just you know, go, yeah, I'm doing a better job than I thought I'd be doing um, you know, if I was maybe doing my old corporate gigs. So, you know, get into it and have fun. 
Okay, Mike, I'm turning the show over to you now. Um, give you any shout outs that you'd like to and uh, make sure you tell all the listeners how they can track you down. Oh, perfect. Uh, well, firstly, thanks, Ben, for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be on here. Um, just like to give a general shout out to the um, Australian and uh, International Barbecue Associations. Um, it's just amazing what the actual, you know, whether it's um, the ABA or the KCS, um, KCBS, um, it, what's happening as a general barbecue movement and throughout the world, you know, watching it happen in the UK and Germany and the US is still going strong. And of course, Australia is just going strength to strength in the barbecue industry. Just like to give a shout out to all of those people who organise that. Um, keep going. This is an amazing thing. And I think it's having a good social impact. So that's just amazing. Um, credit to you. And the other thing is, um, if you want to come find us, um, check out Smart Fire Barbecue on Facebook or Instagram or facebookbarbecue.com. Um, pretty much if you type in face, uh, Smart Fire Barbecue, you're just going to find us. Um, so, yeah, come say hi. Have a chat to us if you see us at a show. Um, yeah, enjoy yourselves. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming into the confessional today. It's been uh, it's been great to have such a detailed insight into the world of product invention and and manufacturing or, or, or innovation, as you put it. Um, I've really appreciated your time, and I'm sure the audience has too. I just want to say, uh, you know, uh, best of luck in the future. And once again, thanks for coming on board. Thanks, Ben. I re- really appreciate it. Well, family, what did I tell you? Pretty interesting, huh? I bet you all have your napkin ideas pulled out of your desk drawers and are suddenly looking at them in a very different light. Mark has really gone all out pursuing his dreams and his success is a tribute to all his hard work. To follow Mark on his journey, follow Smart Fire BBQ on Facebook and Instagram. Next Thursday, I have an awesome episode for you. I'll be interviewing the always bubbly and enthusiastic Joy from Homestead Lovers in South Australia. I initially contacted Joy as I wanted to have a chat with a spice rub manufacturer, but as it turns out, Joy does a lot more than that. You'll have to listen next week to learn exactly what that is. Big thanks and much gratitude go out to this episode's sponsors, Pure Meats, Harvey's Kitchen and Clean Heat Charcoal. Their support makes this project possible. I've put their links in the episode description, so please click on through to their sites to claim those awesome offers for you loyal Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. If you have a message that you'd like included in this podcast to get out to a barbecue mad audience, send me an email directly at ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Shoutouts also have to go to those who called in and left questions for Mark. Adam, Anthony, Brett, Cameron, Chris, Dion, Nigel, Peyton, and Wall. If you'd like more, I have published a free ebook that is just for you. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. I've put a link in the description. Also, head on over to Facebook and join the Smoking Hot Confessions community, and let's continue the conversation. It's a group dedicated to teaching, learning, and sharing all about barbecue, and all the BS is left at the door. Everybody has a place in the Smoking Hot Confessions community. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. This way, the episodes will be delivered to more people's devices by Neo as he leads the underground uprising against the Matrix. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. Yeah.